Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So here we go again. Jack Smith, the special counsel who has been investigating Donald Trump, has yet again yet again delivered us a federal indictment of the 45th president of the United States, this time following up on his indictment a month and a half, two months ago or so, pertaining to classified documents that were retained at Mar-a-Lago, following up this time with the long-awaited and much-anticipated indictment pertaining to the 2020 election and culminating in the January 6, 2021 jamboree at the U.S. Capitol, for which, of course, many others, hundreds if not thousands, have already been prosecuted, those who illegally entered the U.S. Capitol and whatnot. So this has been long anticipated. There are, you know, the politics move so quickly these days that we tend to forget things that happened as recently as just a few months ago. But recall that it wasn't that long ago. Uh, It was really last summer, I think, that it reached its apex where Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney did their duet of sorts on the January 6th Select Committee, and they ultimately recommended exactly what everyone knew that they would recommend, which is that the DOJ pursue criminal charges pertaining to January 6th. And sure enough, that is what Jack Smith has done here. Jack Smith, by the way, I think one thing that the media, uh, characteristically, one thing that the media fails to remind the American people, it's an interesting fact about Jack Smith's biography, He was living in the Netherlands as recently as last December, which was around the time that he was named special counsel in the Trump probes. He moved back to the United States from Europe only effectively to put a good face on the Trump probes. I mean, it's neither here nor there, perhaps, but I I like to point it out because it just underscores the nature of someone, the kind of person who voluntarily moves abroad. uh, Just a little weird. Uh, I just find that a little weird about Jack Smith, to be totally candid. But the indictment itself, there are four counts. So uh, numerous conspiracies, a conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of official government proceedings, deprivation of people of civil rights guaranteed by federal law. So I've read over the indictment. I've read over the indictment. And it is a sham. It is a sham. There's no other way to say it. And by the way, I, I, anyone who listens to this show knows that I am not in the tank for Donald Trump. I am not. I have said any number of times, I've been very open and forthright with you guys. My preference for the Republican nominee for president is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And I call it like I see it when it comes to the persecution, prosecution, the two terms are increasingly interchangeable. I call it like I see it when it comes to Donald Trump's legal travails. The Alvin Bragg indictment, the so-called hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, all of that nonsense back earlier this year, that was a sham. That was a sham. But by contrast, Jack Smith's first indictment 
pertaining to the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, I said was much more serious. Now, it had its glaring flaws or at least major questions as well. First and foremost of which was the decision to whip out the dusty World War I relic of a statute, the Espionage Act, as the substantive basis for which to prosecute there, which the Espionage Act has a long and sometimes inglorious history. It was immediately challenged in court by many who argued it was unconstitutional. Civil libertarians have maintained the unconstitutionality of that act ever since the court's cases on the subject notwithstanding. And there was a debate happening in the background between whether the Espionage Act, even if it were constitutional, was appropriate in a situation like this to whip out against a former president of the United States who was also subject to the Presidential Records Act, a 1970s era statute, which was enacted later by Congress pertaining to ex-presidents and records. So there were many questions about the legal theory that Jack Smith presented in that case. The reason that I think it was stronger relatively speaking, was because the fact patterns alleged in many instances were damning, whether it's what we saw in the, in the most recent superseding indictment with directions from the foreign president to delete security footage, the constant moving around of, of classified documents seemingly to try to escape subpoenas or investigators hiding them in the bathroom. And then, of course, there was that one anecdote where Trump was at Bedminster's golf club in in New Jersey and, according to the indictment, was whipping out top secret United States contingency war plans, perhaps pertaining to Iran and just flashing them in front of a reporter. Just uh, it really does make you think of Peter Griffin from the show Family Guy, right? I mean, just like this guy just waving around these documents, totally clueless. So the conduct was absolutely reckless. That was alleged in that scandal. And the conduct alleged here when it comes to 2020 January 6th was in many ways reckless as well. Now, my longstanding stance on the actual 2020 election is that I have used the phrase stolen to refer to what happened in that election, but I use that like many others do in a much broader and slightly more metaphorical sense. Put another way, if you look at all the various states that changed their election law illegally, states like North Carolina and Pennsylvania come immediately to mind. States that changed their election law due to COVID to allow for more early voting, mail-in balloting, things like that, outside of the normal legislative process, which is what the Constitution very clearly dictates. There is explicit constitutional language dictating that changes to state election law must be duly enacted pieces of state-level legislation, notwithstanding that states, such as the ones I mentioned, Pennsylvania and North Carolina, among others, changed various voting laws via administrative diktat or executive decree. So I, my stance all along has been that if you take a lot of these changes that were illegal, notwithstanding the fact that they did not always get appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, and you combine that with the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New York Post, Facebook, the FBI, the intelligence community, the group of 51 deep state intelligence community operatives working hand in glove with the big tech oligarchs. If you if you take all of this and you combine it together, then it really does give the strong impression that the election was effectively stolen. But but I think that you'd be very hard pressed to actually say that when it comes to the literal votes 
that were cast on Election Day, holding aside the Hunter Biden laptop, New York Post story, holding aside these illicit changes to election law. I think it'd be hard pressed to say that when it comes to sheer fraud, like actual kind of 4 a.m. ballot dumps, that the election was truly legitimately stolen from a numerical perspective. Now, I understand that Dinesh D'Souza tried to do that in the movie 2000 Mules, and we actually had Dinesh on the show over a year ago to discuss that movie after it came out. But I think that that is a extraordinarily more difficult task to try to persuade your audience of that. So anyway, given that, I, I do think that much of President Trump's conduct in the aftermath of the 2020 election was was horrible. It was absolutely reckless. I said at the time that it was crazy to decide to hold that speech at the White House ellipsis that he gave on January 6, 2021. That was a bad decision because anyone with two brain cells could easily foresee the myriad ways, the manifold ways that it could go really freaking south from there. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Then on when the actual riot started down the, the street, down Pennsylvania Avenue at the U.S. Capitol, folks were increasingly calling for Trump to say, call, you know, call these people off. Not that you're personally responsible, but you have a moral obligation. He was a little slow to do that as well. So his conduct was was less considerably less than good. In many ways, it was disqualifying, frankly. But but that does not mean that they amounted to criminal offenses under the United States Criminal Code. Now, again, reviewing this indictment, the basic theory of the case rests on a few things. One is that it rests on being able to prove before a jury, and this is happening in Washington, D.C., so it'll be a very sympathetic jury. It's an Obama-appointed trial court judge who will be oversuing will be overseeing this trial. So uh, the the government, the Department of Justice, Jack Smith, cannot have asked for a better draw on all of that. But the theory basically is that they are going to have to show at trial that Donald Trump had the subjective mindset that he actually legitimately thought that the election was not stolen. In other words, that he knew the election was not stolen. Because if he knew that the election was not stolen, so goes the theory of the case, then he acted fraudulently to do X, Y, Z things, to enlist his attorneys, whether it was on the campaign or whether it was inside the Department of Justice itself, to make various phone calls to Georgia, to Arizona, trying to get people to convene the legislature to vote on competing slates of electors. And then obviously also including what happened with Vice President Mike Pence on January 6th, where there was all this pressure that Mike Pence could reject the slates of electors. But in order for the prosecution to prove that, again, they have to prove that Donald Trump actually deep down knew that the election was not stolen. And I find these, this indictment laughably lacking in evidence to that effect. Now, they say over and over again that various people close to Trump told him that the election was not stolen. That does not mean that Donald Trump subjectively thought, let alone knew for sure, that the election was not stolen. On the contrary, he could have... 99 lawyers tell him the election was not stolen. He could have one crackpot moron like Sidney Powell say that, you know, Hugo Chavez, dead from the grave, working with Dominion, blah, 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 
to rig the election, and he could believe that. Now, admittedly, he did say that some of this Hugo Chavez stuff was was crazy, but you could think that it was crazy and still think that it was true. Have you guys ever read Donald Trump's social media feeds? Have you seen what he puts on Truth Social? He apparently thinks a lot of crazy stuff is true. So that is one glaring problem with the prosecution's theory of the case. The other problems, and they are plural, one is so much of this amounts to criminalizing free speech and criminalizing, really, the integrity of the attorney-client relationship. So beginning in paragraph eight of the indictment, they talk about how there are six co-conspirators. Now, the co-conspirators are unnamed, which in all likelihood... They are not naming them. Perhaps they will file individual prosecutions later if they so choose. But my guess is they're probably leaving them unnamed here to try to see if they might turn against Trump in exchange for some sort of plea bargain, a lesson sentence, things of that nature. Now, co-conspirator two, according to the indictment, says, quote, co-conspirator two, an attorney who devised and attempted to implement a strategy to leverage the vice president's ceremonial role overseeing the certification proceeding to obstruct the certification of the presidential election. This is almost assuredly referring to my friend John Eastman, who has long been affiliated with the Claremont Institute, a think tank that I was once a fellow with and am still close with. He was former dean of Chapman Law School in Southern California. But in recent years, he has been tarred and feathered as a quote-unquote insurrectionist for the legal theories that he espoused in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Even those legal theories were actually grossly, by the way, mischaracterized. In fact, in a January 2021 essay for Claremont's American Mind website, John clarified exactly what he actually won the vice president to do on January 6th, and it was very, very far from, quote, overturning the election. Suffice it to say, you can go ahead and check out that essay for yourself if you want to learn more about it. But the point here is, in the context of representing his client, former President Trump, John Eastman acted exactly how legal ethics canons tell you an attorney is supposed to act, which is to act zealously, zealous representation of your client, Yes, sometimes these matters of close constitutional interpretation about the constitutionality of the Electoral Count Act of the 1870s, the aftermath of the, uh, the dispute election of 1876, of the 1880s, whenever that exact statute was passed. Yes, you are allowed to take aggressive interpretations of statute as long as they are done earnestly and in zealous defense of your client. What the Democrats and Jack Smith are trying to do right now is criminalize various acts of constitutional interpretation that do not suit their particular proclivities. Let me say that again. What Jack Smith is doing here, among other things, is trying to criminalize various acts of constitutional interpretation that do not suit their proclivities. You know, the U.S. Supreme Court disagrees all the time about about constitutional interpretation. We just saw it recently in the affirmative action cases, among other big cases. They do it every term. And here... They're trying to criminalize that act of disagreement. Furthermore, early on in the indictment, it reads that the defendant, former President Trump, oh, of course he had the right to go ahead and speak freely about the election. But, but, but. And again, the but, but, but is all predicated upon what I just said, which is that deep down he knew that the election was somehow 
legitimate. It was kosher. It was not stolen. And that therefore all of this that he and his quote-unquote co-conspirators, co-conspirators perpetrated was a fraud. That takes a shockingly narrow view of free speech. It takes a shockingly narrow view of what a president of the United States is allowed to say about an election affecting his own campaign. You know, what if Trump actually genuinely thought that the election was stolen? Hold aside the facts, hold aside that the numbers don't quite add up. What if he actually thought that? From that perspective, he arguably had a constitutional duty under an oath of office to try to take various steps, whether under the Electoral Count Act, the 1887 statute, or others, to try to remedy that problem. So there are really too many problems here to even count. The biggest problem of all, of course, is that this is a fundamentally political matter. The very nature of this is as political as it gets. It pertains to political proceedings, the election of November 2020, and the counting of the electoral votes on January 6, 2021, for which the proper remedy for these manifestly political things is a political remedy. Put another way, the proper remedy, if you oppose what happened, is the ballot box next fall. That's how it should be. The Supreme Court has a doctrine in constitutional interpretation called the political question doctrine, which effectively means that when some questions are just so thoroughly quote-unquote political and the court does not stand fit to provide a proper legal remedy, then some things are just deferred to the political process. That rough analogy is exactly what should have happened here. The indictment also really does undermine, again, Jack Smith's handiwork in the classified documents indictment, which, relatively speaking, again, it's not without its glaring problems, the whole Espionage Act, Presidential Records Act, all that, but that indictment was comparatively much better thought out. There was a real theory of the case there. You might disagree with the application of the Espionage Act, but there was a real theory of the case, and the fact pattern that comes out in that other indictment is quite damning. Jack Smith has sullied himself with this additional indictment in doing the dirty work of Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and the others on the January 6th Kangaroo Court Select Committee. Because this is not prosecutable conduct here. You can say it's immoral, it's garbage, that only people with bad character would do and say these things and so forth. All of that is fine. Go ahead and write your papers, your op-eds, tweet out your radio shows, podcasts. Say all that if you want to. That doesn't mean that it is criminally prosecutable conduct. Finally, that gets us to the politics of the 2024 Republican presidential primary and what this does. Well, you know, I've been saying for a while now, almost a year, going back to the Mar-a-Lago raid last August, which ultimately culminated in the first of Jack Smith's two indictments, the classified document indictment. I have said going back as far as that, that it was clear based on what the Biden administration was doing, that they want Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee. He hadn't even announced yet. In fact, here was my column last August, August 12th, almost a year to the day after the Mar-a-Lago raid. I said, quote, there are three primary conclusions to draw 
from Monday's unprecedented raid. First, it seems that Trump's fundraising and support metrics have only increased due to his perceived martyrdom, thus bolstering his prospects in his 2024 Republican presidential primary. Since this rally around the flag effect was so easily foreseeable, it seems likely this was a factor in Merrick Garland's decision to approve the raid. The Biden regime seems to think that since it defeated Trump in 2020, it can do so again in 2024. Anyone with their eyes and ears open should be able to recognize that fact. Every time you have this indictment now, beginning with the Alvin Bragg indictment earlier this year, certainly now going through this one, which is a total sham. You have this rally around the flag effect where Trump benefits in the polls. So, yes, I do think that Joe Biden and Merrick Garland and Jack Smith and the rest of the corrupt lawyers at the DOJ and deep in the bowels of the deep state have made their choice and they are choosing that they want to run against Donald Trump. They're choosing that they want to run against him because they know that Donald Trump will lose. He is not going to beat Joe Biden. I could be wrong. Many of us are wrong in 2016, but I think a lot has changed. Whether it's independent voters, suburbanites, moderates, and so forth, a lot really has changed between Trump's situations in 2016 and now. And, you know, finally, that brings us to the question, what should everyone else do? What should Ron DeSantis and all the other candidates who are trying to topple Trump do? How do you handle this situation? Well, it really does put them in quite a tough position, quite a tough predicament, right between a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, if you don't say anything at all about it, you will get labeled a traitor, by the the hardcore MAGA folks on Twitter and whatnot. And it probably hurts them on the substance because, at least in this case, this prosecution right here is a sham and it should be condemned. On the other hand, if you do condemn the prosecution and continue political persecution of Trump, you're just feeding fuel to the fire and this rally around the flag effect will only increase. So what are you supposed to do? Well, it's really difficult, obviously, but one idea is to advance the argument, what's happening to Donald Trump is wrong. They've been after him ever since 2016 election, the Russia collusion, delusion, all of that. But the man had four years to gut the deep state and fundamentally failed in that respect. So if you want actual vindication for the injustices directed against Trump, Somewhat paradoxically, I am the only one who is laser-focused and mission-oriented enough to gut, eviscerate the deep state, and get the job done. It's a difficult needle to thread. You basically have to argue that Donald Trump deserves your immense sympathy, but not your vote. He had his shot at deconstructing the deep state, the administrative state that has taken us down this dark path to here. But if you want someone to surgically remove these cancerous elements from the federal bureaucracy, it has to be me. It's a very difficult needle to thread. I'm not sure that he can do it or anyone can do it. But if I were Ron DeSantis, that is definitely along the lines 
of what I would be trying to say and do right now. But for now, yet another dark episode in the increasingly sordid story of the rule of law in America. R.I.P. Rule of Law in America. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.